0: We will be today in Second Samuel chapter 12, um, so it's close to the beginning of your Bible, a couple of books in, um, and really kind of focuses on the life of David, which uh, we'll get to here in a second, but before we get there, um, I, I don't know how you feel, but I don't like airplanes. Like, I just, I don't. Um, I haven't flown on them often, but like, I, I, when, you get onto the, when you get onto the plane, it's this tiny little tube that you sit in with hundreds of people, and first there's like, there's not a ton of shoulder room, and they just jam you in there like sardines. I, I'm blessed because I'm short, so I don't have the legroom problem, but I've got this overactive mind. And so as I'm sitting there watching the wing kind of go up and down as we're going down the runway, you know, like they're just taxiing out in every little bump, the wing goes down and then comes up and then goes down. And you're like, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're going to fly on that. Like, how, how high are we going? How fast are we going? Now, now look. Look. I have bad days at work, and I'm gonna trust myself to somebody who might have had a bad day at work, like forgot to put all of the fuel in, or forgot to check that the tires are pop- properly bolted on, right? Like, I don't know, I just, I just tend to be rather skeptical, because I, I get the idea that once I'm 40,000 feet in the air, if somebody made a mistake on the ground, it's like it's over it just does it just doesn't matter right like i don't know too many f- survive from f- from 40,000 feet kinds of stories right like that that's just the way that it is so that's the way my heart thinks i'm just like super skeptical about the catastrophe and then i got my wife who sits beside me who's just like she doesn't care i, I don't know i guess she just has better like a, a deeper faith in god and that she's like she's like oh, whatever it's okay and then she'll like tell me stupid stats like oh in 2010 there was only like 952 people that died in an airplane crash. I'm like yeah but that was 952 too many, to start with. But she's like yeah, yeah yeah but you don't understand. There was 27.8 million flights in 2010. And 952 people died. Yeah, still doesn't matter. <laughs> 952 people died, and I don't want to be one of them. So I'm just not comfortable on the, on the, on the plane. The, the challenge, though, is, is that a lot, of, a lot of people feel that way about the church. Like, like when, when they look at the church, and they look at its track record, and they look at the damage that can be done, they go... I don't know if I'm gonna sit in that seat, right? And we we ask the question, like, doesn't all of that injustice, all of that historical injustice in the church discount the message of the church? Doesn't it undermine what the church is doing? And therefore, why would I ever darken its doors? Why would I ever trust it? Why would I ever say, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm on board? And You, you know, like, uh, there's some fair critiques there. Christopher Hitchens, the, the late Christopher Hitchens, um, said in God is Not Great, uh, this is a quote, he said, violent irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry, invested in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive towards children, organized religion ought to have a great deal on its conscience. And isn't that true? I mean, there is an undeniable dark side to church history. Crusades, inquisitions, burnings, drownings, enslavings, imprisonings, lynchings, homophobia, and abuse. So what do we do with all of that baggage? How do we understand it? How do we engage with it? Well, I think 2 Samuel 12 gives us a way to start understanding what we do with almost institutional corruption, institutional sin. So if you would, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to read the first seven verses, and at first you're going to think, huh? Bear with me. We'll get there. So starting in verse 1, it says, and the Lord... "'Sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, "'There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. "'The rich man had very many flocks and herds, "'but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. "'And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children.' It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup. Now, I don't treat my pets that way, but cool. And lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are that man. So, a, a little bit of background because you 're like, "What is Nathan doing here like what 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 is this story all about? If you would just kind of squeeze back into into uh, chapter eleven, you would discover that um, David is at home in his palace by himself while he sent everybody off to war to conquer the lands that need to be conquered and there he is where when he should have been with his troops he should have been out there helping out he should have been directing and being being a king instead he's sitting at home and he comes out onto his roof and he sees this beautiful woman bathing over there and, and, and instead of going, oh, I, I should just go over here and look over this side of my balcony. No, no, no. No, no, no. He lets the thought go. And then he says, you know what? Actually, I think I should invite her into my home. And then, and then he, he sleeps with Bathsheba. And she gets pregnant. Oops. So David thinks, well, what am I going to do about this? I mean, uh, her husband right now is off at war, so that's great. But then her husband comes back and is this super loyal follower of, of David and doesn't want to go home to see his wife. David's like, you know what? Actually, I've got this great idea. I'm just going to give him kind of like a little furlough. He'll go home. He's been gone for a long time. We know what happens when you've been gone for a long time. And then, and then when the baby is born, there won't be a question. And I'll be, I'll be free. I can wash my hands of it. But this dumb Uriah is like, no, 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 I'm so loyal to David that I'm going I'm to sleep on the doorstep. And then David's like, well, what am I going to do? Okay, so I'm going to send a letter along to the general and I'm going to say, look, you need to put Uriah at the front of the line. and You're going to attack over here and it will mean that it will be his certain death. And in so doing, then I will hide my sin. And sure enough, Uriah dies. David thinks. <sighs> but then God sends Nathan. He says, you know, there was this guy who was really rich and he had everything that he could possibly want. But instead of taking from his own flock, he went and found this precious lamb and took it and slaughtered it. And you are that man. And David is confronted with his own sin. So I, I think from how, kind of how Nathan approaches David, we can learn a few things as we go along. One, there is injustice. Two, there will be justice. Three, repentance is needed. And fourth, there is restoration. So... I'll start with the first one, injustice. David sinned. I mean, David didn't just sin a little bit. He coveted. Then he was an adulterer. And then he became a murderer. Like sin begot sin begot sin. And he just kind of thought he could keep piling it upon each other. And maybe we could keep this ball hidden. But the reality is, is that he sinned. This man after God's own heart. When, when Samuel comes to find David, God says, don't look at outward appearance, but look at the heart, because that's what matters. And David is a man after my own heart. And here we have a man after God's own heart putting sin behind him and covering it up over and over and over again. When David goes to reflect on this in Psalm 51, uh, in verse 5, he says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, what David recognizes as he's confronted with his sin is that, is that his his propensity, his natural bent is towards his own selfish protection, his own selfish desires. So when he reflects on the sin that he's confronted with, he thinks, man, I've had this all the time. Like in every circumstance that I go into, I don't choose to do the thing that God wants me to do. I don't typically choose to do the thing that's right. I choose the thing that will do the best for me. So if that means I have to kill a man, I'll kill him. If that means I want a woman, I will take her. And man, that's just like, that's been here since I was born. And I, th- I think, I think that if we're all honest, that would be All of our experience. I don't know about you, but my toddlers are not saints. They're just just not. The first things that they learn are no. Lincoln, go brush your teeth. No. It's good for you. No. But there will be a consequence. No. Oh, Okay. Awesome. And then baby brother comes along. He's like, oh, I like that. I'm going to take that and I'm going to walk over here. What did you just do? Well, that's mine. I was playing with it. No, you weren't. Yes, I was. Well, I wanted to play with it. So now I'm going to take it and I'm going to play with it. He dropped it for like a second because he's won and he fumbled it. Right, like this. This is this. This reality of sin exists in us from from day one. We are so self interested, so brought within ourselves that we that that we just don't obey God's law. Martin Scorsese, to bring like a you know an authority to it, uh, said, "Deep down, you want to think that people are really good." But the reality outweighs that. The reality outweighs that. See, I think that if we have an honest picture of who we are and we we reflect on who we are, now we can start to understand how it's possible that some of the injustices in the church could have happened. See, we, we are innately self-interested, drawn to power, easily corrupted, greedy, lustful, lovers of ourselves. And so, when you have those kinds of people, it's no wonder that certain things happen that are just heinous. See, d- d- the other side, though, is this, this sin wasn't just simply a, a personal sin that David, that David kind of had on his own, because he was king of Israel. He represented the body of Israel as its head, And he was represented God to the people in a way. Like God was supposed to be king, but Israel wanted a king, so here sat David as an intermediary, as a, as a representative, as the head of Israel. And so this sin wasn't just personal, it was institutional. It was national. So that begs the question then, what are our institutional sins? Well, I, th- I think that there are four kind of main ones. That when somebody says, hey, look, look at these injustices in the church. I think that there's four main ones that we need to look at. First, the Crusades. So, at at the risk of oversimplifying it, I'll I'll try and do this um, as best I can. So, the the, the Crusades were um, military expeditions made by Europeans to recover holy lands from Muslims in the 11th to 13th centuries. It It was a geopolitical blend of church and state. And it wasn't necessarily about the advancement of the kingdom of God, and it definitely wasn't about the conversion of souls. See, there there might have been crosses painted on shields, and those soldiers may have killed Muslims who recently invaded their lands, but... It was religiously complicated, politically motivated, but was disguised in some sort of Christendom that looked nothing like Christ. But at, at the same time, unlike popular myth, it may, in many cases battles were fought defensively to protect Christians from invading uh, to protect Christians from invading Muslim attackers, or to reclaim land that had been lost. To Muslim invaders. You can understand why it was called the Holy Wars. A Muslim army on one side. A Catholic army on the other side. The religious symbols flying in the air. And clashing over land on the ground. And yet that looked nothing like Jesus. Nothing. Like Jesus. Second, sin the church has in its history, the Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition was a uh, tribunal, an extension of the papal Inquisition in the 15th century in Spain uh, that sought to identify heretics and bring them to justice. And by justice, we mean sometimes burning them at the stake. It's an ugly example of the dangerous mix of church and state. Political power, uh, Christianity, has, uh, Christianity has always thrived as a, sub, as a sub, subversive movement, and yet in this circumstance, it was politics and power that drove the Inquisition, drove the, the weeding out of the heretic and eliminating them from opposition third though is the witch trials now there's there's kind of popular like Dan Brown Da Vinci code kinds of numbers in which people kind of hold up as this as this thing five million people were killed in the witch trials but that that's that source is a fiction book so maybe we should look a little bit closer Uh, American ac- academic Carl Sagan wrote that no one knows how many witches the church killed altogether. Perhaps hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions. But curiously, he doesn't cite a source. He just kind of throws that out there. Possibly hundreds of thousands, possibly millions. But m- most academics would estimate that between 40,000 and 60,000 people were killed in the witch trials. 60,000 men and women were killed for being supposed witches. That should crush us. The most famous of these, uh, at least for us Canadians, uh, would be the Salem Witch Trials in, in uh, Massachusetts. Did I say that right? Massachusetts. That's right. Cool. Uh, so it's, it's popularly believed that thousands um, died there. But the, the reality, historians tell us that there were actually less than 25. Now, now don't, don't hear me wrong, though, is that... <sighs> That's 25 that should never have been lost due to the church. But it was less than 25. And finally, there has been an ongoing abuse that has been in the church. Probably most famously, the Catholic church has been embroiled in scandals involving child abuse by priests and subsequent cover-ups by the church. Instead of owning that sin, instead of outing that priest, they would just move them to the next parish. What? But you see, it would be nice to say that that just happened in the churches out there. It's just the Catholic church. But the reality is is that the Protestant church aren't without its faults as well. It's not only abuse of children, but abuse of women, abuse of power. I mean, we can look just in the last decade at Protestant churches in the United States and probably come up with at least 10 examples of people who have sexually abused or manipulated people. And we haven't even touched residential schools there has been injustice. That's just the reality. However, there is justice. See, David was held accountable, right? In all of his attempts to keep the sin that he had thought was personal and private and hidden and well buttoned up, God did not. So God sends Nathan to confront David of his sin, to say, you think you've got it all covered up, but guess what? I see what you have done. And when David is confronted with this anonymous person, his his condemnation is of death. Like whoever this guy is, this anonymous guy is, he deserves to die. His sin is so great that he deserves to die. Nathan's like, well, I'm here to keep you accountable, David. You're the guy who sinned. right. So now those, those proclamations of death are not so easy to swallow and yet Paul reiterates that in Romans chapter 6 verse 23 when he says the wages of sin is death. See that sin that so easily kind of comes up from when we're young and, and just kind of causes us to kind of bend inwards on ourselves and be crooked and justify all of those places that we ought not to justify but we do. Anyways, that sin comes back With the paycheck of death. All of that work comes back with the paycheck of death. Because that is just. You see. The sin that so easily indwells us. The sin that so easily caused David to throw away all that he had. Just for one thing. comes with death. And I think that's, that should be sobering to us. Not on an institutional level, but a personal one. It's that we, we all walked in through this door. I walked in through this door today knowing what I thought about on my drive here. about how I treated my kids and when I lost my temper or whether or, not I've, or whether or not I've treated my wife properly. And the cost is significant, isn't it? So before I go and start condemning the church, rightfully so, I'm going to take a minute and look at myself. And ask the question, <laughs> where do I fall in the ledger of justice? How will I be held accountable? Oh, I don't like that question. But, 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 but you see, the, the, the beauty is that God, God, God did not say, oh, I'm, I, came to, I came to save good people. He, he came to save people who are like me who are broken, who try and do as best as they can. But, you know, sometimes you just swerve off the road. There's something you see and you, you look that way and all of a sudden you're on the other side of the line. And you go, oh, oh my goodness. And so God, God in his mercy sends Jesus so that he can be just. He can pay for all of those wrongs that have been done to us that he can, that, or that we have done, that he can pay for all of those either, either by bringing that justice down on us or bringing it down on Christ, But the church will not, will not escape that accountability. See, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is a really interesting section in the Bible. It's great, really close to the end. Um, this, John, one of the apostles, has this vision. Jesus gives him this vision of kind of what, what heaven will look like. This, this gospel kind of um, realization, what it would look like. But at the very beginning, he, he witnesses Jesus talking to these seven churches. And it's seven times where Jesus comes in to a church and says, Look, you're doing this well, but here's where you're failing. And if you fail, I will remove you. See, it's not as if the church has a free pass just because it's the church. No, no, no. The head of that church will one day say, I will bring justice to you, church. And I think we need to let that sit as the church. Before, before we look at the world around us, before we look at our neighbor and say, oh, where are they missing the mark? Maybe we ought to say, hey, like, where, where, is it that, where is it that we've missed the mark? And there's a lot of Nathans that might be coming and saying, hey, guess what? You are that man. God will hold his church accountable for all of its sins third though david has a response later on in the passage in second samuel 12:13 david says to nathan i i i have sinned against the lord it would have been very easy from David's perspective as a king to crush Nathan and say, shut up. That never happened. You will never speak of it again. And I will kill you if you won't. But he didn't. David repented. When faced with his own sin, David's response was, I have sinned. That accusation landed on him, and instead of deflecting it, he owned it. In Psalm 51, verse 4, he says, Against you, being Lord, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So Psalm 51 is this reflection on this incident with Nathan and this whole kind of debacle that's happening. And he he says, God, I've sinned against you. And some of us might think, wait a second. I think Bathsheba got sinned against. I think Uriah got sinned against. I think there's a few more people here than just God. One of the commentators, though, says, says that the way we need to think about it is this, is that with all of the collateral damage to so many lives, um, how, how can David say this? How can David say, I've only sinned against God or I've sinned against you? The simple answer is that before lifting a hand against a fellow human being, we first shake our fist in God's face. If love of God precedes and enables love of neighbor, Defiance of God proceeds and enables abuse of neighbor. See, God was the most significant one sinned against. Before David sinned with Bathsheba, he said, you know what, God, I know you said do not commit adultery, but I don't care, invite her in. His sin was primarily, firstly, against God. God, David was seduced by Bathsheba's beauty because he was no longer captivated by God's. It is the denial of God's beauty that bring about the same injustices throughout history. You see, Jesus said when he walked on this earth, my kingdom is not of this world. Yet we brandish, we brandished military might to secure our borders in the Crusades. God forgave us when we were enemies and yet we rooted out heretics and burnt them at the stake. God came to seek and save the lost. He came to relieve the demon oppressed and instead the church rounded them up and killed them in the witch trials. Jesus came and said, let the little children come to me. Let them come to me. And yet the church abused them. We have lots to repent of. We have lots to own. And you might think though, that at this point, yeah, 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 you see, just like you don't trust the plane, I don't, I don't trust the church. There have been too many times when something has gone wrong There's no way I will come in. I guess. I guess my question to you is: Well, what? What then? Is the alternative? What? What then is the solution? You see, Christopher Hitchens threw stones at organized religion saying that that, that was just showed violence and bigotry and the whole laundry list. And we would say, yeah, you know what? That's totally been true. But his solution was atheism. Right? Like, let's just get rid of God. Because all that happens when you pull the God card is people get abused and things go wrong and crusades happen. So let's just get rid of that. And let's just be good people. The problem is that the most violent, dehumanizing regimes in history have taken place in the last 100 years, and have been atheistic and not religious. Stalin in Russia, Mao in China, the Rouge in Cambodia, and Hitler in Germany were driven by Marxist, communist, atheistic philosophies. A rejection of God at the center of their systems of belief. Rouge killed estimated two million people. Hitler, an estimated six million people. Stalin, 20 million. And Mao, an estimated 50 to 70 million people in 100 years. See, in the last 500 years of, of so-called Christian failure, and I, do, I, don't, I don't say that lightly, 200 to 250,000 people have been killed, mostly in geopolitical warfare. And yet none of them, 250,000 is a heinous number. But the alternative that Hitchens espouses in the last 100 years has killed between 80 and 100 million people. Mark Clark, in his book, wrote, uh, in his book, um, what's his book called? Nope. Got Mark Clark. Come on. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter. Uh, in his book, the only one he's written so far, uh, <laughs> Yeah, he, he wrote, uh, history has proven that adopting a philosophy wherein the answer to violence and oppression is less religious is a failure. If your solution to violence is to be less religious, that is an absolute failure. That is a historical fact. G.K. Tresterton, a Christian philosopher, said this, I do believe in Christianity, and, it's my impre- uh, and my impression is that a, system, that a system must be divine, which has survived so much insane mismanagement. And I think he's right. I mean, if you look back on Christian history and you see what that looks like, and you think, man, the church is still standing today after all of that, there's something to it. There's something to it. And the reason is, is because it's not the people in the church that make the church great. It's the person who's building the church that makes the church great. And, that, and that's the fourth piece. that so we have restoration. There is a faithful God behind the failure who redeems it. See, in David's circumstances, His throne lasted forever. We have this account of David, and all of the psalms that he wrote, and we have the 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 person and lineage of Jesus because of David. And that wasn't David's doing; that was God's. See, God, in His faithfulness, looked at David and said, "Yeah, you're broken." I'm going to keep you accountable. There will be consequences to your actions, but I'm faithful and I'm building my kingdom. And so because you had a hiccup doesn't mean that my plan isn't going to move forward. Sarah, uh, no, Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, Confronting Christianity, said this. Christians were the first to found hospitals and for all their moral failures have done more in in global terms to alleviate suffering than any other movement. I think we lose the forest for the trees sometimes. When we look at the big plane crashes and the failures of the church. And that's not to say that we shouldn't own them, that we shouldn't understand the the pain and and difficulty that it's caused, the the wreckage that it's caused, the the ongoing hurt that it's caused, but maybe we better look at the baby before we throw it out with the bathwater. See, the, the, the church has actually been... One of the most positive influences in all of history. See, in in terms of the sanctity of life and hospitals and women's rights and the abolition of slavery and liberty and justice, education and science, music and art, the, the, the church has been on the forefront of all of those. To start with, the sanctity of human life Christianity, the the, the the message of the Bible and the life and work of Jesus and the and the subsequent then building of the church elevated the sanctity of human life. In the ancient Roman and Greece and Greece and other societies, human life was cheap and expendable, especially if you were a woman or a child. But the Christian message was, no, 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 Men and women are equally in the image of God. And so you cannot treat women differently. You just can't. And then from that they they opposed suicide and gladiator contest. The early church motivated by by the gospel opposed abortion and infanticide and abandonment of Children. And in most Western societies today, infanticide and child abandonment are still illegal because of that reality. Hospitals. Christians introduced hospitals into the world in the 4th century motivated by Jesus' words. I was sick and you cared for me. I thought, well, if Jesus came for the sick, then we should be for the sick. The abolition of slavery Slavery in some form was virtually universal in every human culture over centuries. It was Christians who first came to the conclusion that it was wrong, and it was Christians who began to work for abolition because they saw it as violating the will of God. William Wilberforce in Great Britain and John Woolman in the US devoted their entire lives to the ending of slavery in Jesus' name because they read the scripture and said, everybody is equal. The civil rights movement by Martin Luther King Jr. was led because he believed the gospel. Education, universities grew out of uh, the church's medieval monasteries. Oxford and Cambridge in the UK, Harvard and Yale and Princeton in the US all began as seminaries or were founded by Christian leaders. It is because of the belief in the dignity and worth of human beings that Christians have advocated for all children around the globe to receive an education historically and today. We give up our resources and our time to make sure that people are educated. (laughs) In in science, C.S. Lewis said um, at one point in time, men became scientists because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator. See, they looked at the world around them and they looked at their experience with God and they said, well, if God is a God of order and God created this, then we can actually expect something of the world and we can look at it and see things that are repeated. And so was born science. So there's this fake idea that science and religion, that science and faith don't coincide. In fact, they were, science was born out of faith. Music, Catholic monks developed the first forms of modern Western music. And art, several historians credit the Catholic Church for what they consider to be the brilliance and magnificence of Western art. You see, the church isn't all bad. But it's not, it's not due to us. It's due to a faithful God, who even though we sin, even though we do wrong things, he is faithful and restores. He takes all of that brokenness and brings out of it art and music and liberty and justice and education and science. Andrew Wilson wrote this when he was, um, he was outside in the backyard, um, kind of having a little campfire with his kids, roasting some marshmallows and doing that, and as he's staring at the fire, which is an awesome thing to do, just stare at the fire, you can lose yourself in there. The thought came into his mind, I cannot believe that we burned somebody in that. He started to wrestle how is it possible? And, and, and this is what he wrote. Our low points expose the fallibility of our heroes and prompt us to thank God that he built and continues to build his church through broken people. At one level, the fact that Bernard of Clairvaux preached the Second Crusade and Jonathan Edwards owned slaves and Martin Luther denigrated Jews undermines the gospel they preached so eloquently. At another level, it vindicates it. All at once, they were princes and paupers, priests and beggars, sinners and saints. So are we. See, the, the beauty of the church is not that we're perfect, but that God is redeeming us. And that through that redemption, we have it. An honest reading of church history also makes the Bible's history far more applicable. There is no hint of a whitewash of Israel in Genesis or Judges. First Kings or Second Chronicles, the story of the early church is full of great achievements alongside rifts, squabbles, betrayals and disappointments. Scripture paints God's people as a mighty yet flawed community, anointed by God, yet afflicted by sin. When we find that our ancestors in church history have been similar, it should not surprise us. And I think that should actually be an encouragement is that we can look back at, at church history and say, yeah, we have, like, man, we have things to own. And we have things to be accountable for. And we need to repent of all of that wrongness. Despite all of that, God continues to build his church. And he continues to bless the nations because of it. And that should be, that should be an encouragement to me personally. Because I know my last week looks a lot like David. But there's a God working in me that will use me despite myself to bless those around me. So man, why wouldn't I want to be a part of what God is doing in the church? Why why wouldn't I? Because it's his work. Let's pray. Jesus, just, I, I want to thank you for, um, for not coming to save the perfect, but coming to save those who are broken like me, who just stumble over myself day in and day out and constantly have to look back and say, yep, I made a mistake. Yep, I made a mistake. Can you forgive me for that? Jesus, thank you that you came to save me and you brought me into this body called the church so that we can exemplify what it looks like to be people who sin and turn to you in repentance. And God, that you are so faithful to restore us. So God, I, I, just, I just lift up the church to you. God, you know our you know our past. You know the injustices that have happened and all of the lives that we have so broken. God, I, I, just, I, just, I just lift that to you and, and, and pray, God, that you would bring restoration and wholeness. God, that you would keep us accountable. God, that you would turn our hearts in repentance, God, and that um, from that you would bring a glorious truth that points to you. So God, would you just do that? In Jesus' name, amen.